Hiya. Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm feeling a bit gaga, a bit exhausted because uh, I've jumped into the local cold water swimming pool today, which was fantastic, although I was swimming in the rain because this is Britain. Uh, but afterwards, I, you feel completely drained. So um, I'm feeling I might nod off halfway through my podcast. Um, so apologies for that. So first of all, uh, a couple of posts I forgot to talk about um, from earlier this month because of travel and so on. So just thought I'd catch up on those. So first, Stefan Durkin has got a new book out called Gambling on Development and Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. Great title. And he introduced the book. I've got it on my reading list, and so I'll review it in due course. But anyway, just a little bit about uh, from his piece. The thesis, and Stefan Durkin, for those who don't know, is a professor at Oxford who was um, special advisor to the Foreign Office uh, during its period of amalgamating with DFID. So he's an insider. He's been in the room for some of these kind of difficult conversations about, uh, about the merger between the Foreign Office and DFID. Um, but he didn't talk about that in his piece. I'm trying to get him to write a piece about sort of top tips for being an advisor to government, but that'll be another blog. So his presentation of the book was, the thesis of the book is that to get progress in development, a fundamental condition is to have an elite bargain that is sufficiently focused on growth and development. The elite are those with power and influence within a country, politicians, senior bureaucrats, business leaders, maybe the military and civil society. For growth and development, an essential precondition is the existence of an elite bargain that includes an underlying shared commitment to pursue growth and development. I call this a development bargain. And it has to be more than loose words by some leader. Such a bargain must address three features. First, the political and economic deal has to provide the basis for peace and stability. Without these, developments simply cannot happen. Second, the state is focused on achieving this progress, but in a realistic way, within its own capabilities. This is crucial too. Ideological stands on whether or not the state leads are unhelpful. In many countries, states are too weak or have too little capability to guide the economy with any reasonable chance of success. China was an exception, and 2,000 years of centralised bureaucracy and tax-raising powers surely helped with this. But the more hands-off approach, leaving space for business, for NGOs and even aid, was definitely quite sensible for Bangladesh in the last few decades, given the politics and the way the state functions and with a high return, as Naomi Hussain has so carefully discussed. Finally, and something where lots of countries fail over time, a development bargain must be willing to learn from its errors. As Yuan Yuan Ang shows, showed persuasively for China, without a structure that encourages learning and correction, success is hardly possible, as day-to-day decision-making is hard and errors will be made. This seems like a long list of requirements, and everywhere this elite bargain is a gamble that may not pay off in the short run. What's more, over time, development and growth will create new power dynamics that may cause some in the elite to lose power and influence. It makes recent progress in some countries even more impressive. I'm not talking about China-style levels of growth and poverty reduction. That is hugely exceptional. I mean takeoff in the sense of decent and sustained GDP growth per capita of at least 3% over long periods combined with clear progress in poverty and other development outcomes. In the book, I point to Indonesia, Ghana, Bangladesh, tentatively Rwanda, and even show optimism around Kenya and Uganda. 
I despair about Nigeria, DR Congo, but also Malawi, Sierra Leone and South Sudan. Supporting this from the outside is hard too. I spend a few chapters trying to consider what to do with aid and a few lessons stand out. First, you can do a lot in places where those with power and influence where those with power and influence genuinely try to achieve progress. Although genuinely means far more than just turning up to some SDG jamboree in New York with a nice speech. Second, you can't do much in places where the elite bargain is stuck, and far less than I would have hoped for. This is not an appeal to do nothing but for, humil- but for humility. I give hints about what to do there, nevertheless. And third, whatever you do, or wherever you work as a development advisor or expert, whether as an economist or a technical expert, local or outsider, nothing will have a long-term serious impact. Nothing will really work unless you understand local politics. This is not the same as saying that it is all simply politics. Good technical advice matters. But at your peril, do you forget to consider how it will play out and interact with politics? And that last paragraph was the bit people liked and picked up on social media. And the second post I forgot, and I'm catching up on now, was a little bit about um, the course I'm, I've, I've been developing for um, uh, uh, the UN called the Global Executive Leadership Initiative. We've just done our first two pilots in um, Amman and Nairobi. Each pilot is for 25 senior aid people, uh, 40% UN, 40% INGO, and then 20% Red Cross and national NGOs. Uh, And we're trying to give them the sort of basics of influencing because they're in very influential positions uh, and they're trying to be more intentional. We want them to be more intentional about how they influence for change. And and what was interesting for me is I haven't taught at this level of seniority before. I tend to teach up to master's level. I do stuff with uh, colleagues at Oxfam. But these were the most senior people I've worked with and I rapidly realised I've had to change the way I teach and the way I talk to people. Um, so firstly, I realised that the, what I think, I, when I think I'm being participatory with my students, it's a very different kind of participatory than the, the, the way you do participation with senior um, people who, you know, who've got 20 years of experience. So it's no good just sort of putting up a PowerPoint and putting up a photo and saying, what do you see here? You, know, you, can, you can just draw much more deeply on their experience. So you can, you can give a fairly... A general concepts, you know, power, hidden power, and then you say, what have you seen in your own experience? And they all just dive in. So actually, you need to have much more confidence in their ability. You don't have to choreograph the participation nearly as much, I think, as you do with students who, who may not have much experience or confidence. Um, but on the other hand, I found that people have a very limited um, sort of appetite for tools, frameworks, diagrams, you know, the stuff we throw at our students. Um, and I've actually had to reduce it and find a couple which they all find useful. And the two I settled on were actually one I've only just started using properly, which is the Ishikawa diagram. It's a fishbone diagram for unpacking the multiple causes of a problem. And they love this. Uh, and in, um, I think it was Nairobi, they said, can we give up our lunch hour and just do an Ishikawa diagram on the causes of vaccine hesitancy? Because many of them were working on COVID. And they came up with a great um, uh, unpacking of the causes of vaccine hesitancy. And then yeah, the next stage is to identify some things you could try and influence. And the other one is the um, yeah, staple stakeholder analysis of a two by two of how influential are these actors and how much do they agree with your position 
uh, and which and that enables you to ident identify clusters of allies, opponents, and swingers. Um, and that the both of those went down very well, and I think I'll just stick with those rather than yeah, you know, uh, try and talk people through a lot of them. Um, the other thing is putting yourself in their shoes. Why are they there? They you know I think there are three reasons why people really enjoy executive. Um, uh, retreats like this first is to get away from their emails you know um, it's fun it's lots of ideas they meet new people so you gotta yeah that's all great and that means defending the coffee breaks you know that that um, if a crucial part of this is networking then you don't want to just talk people into the ground so we actually defended the coffee breaks to such an extent that it was that if something was running out of time we said great let's have a longer coffee break and they loved that and then uh, I, watching some of my colleagues in action has been a revelation. In particular, I think Hugo Slim, who's one of the uh, one of the people in our team. Uh, by the end of the first day, he has everyone's names and affiliations. Uh, he's rapidly learning their life stories. He can remember who said what days later. He calls it whole body listening. And I started doing this. I started really you know, putting in some time to learn everybody's names. Um, uh, and, and affiliations before the start of the course and it's just amazing I mean it just creates a great initial atmosphere um, and the other thing is how do you start one of these things you know this thing where you go around the room and everybody says who they are where they're from yes yeah, it's, it, it's it's kind of life sapping so we just jumped straight in and did a sort of tongue-in-cheek icebreaker and said the hotel has shut the swimming pool your ambassador is arriving in three days and really likes having a swim before work What's your influencing strategy to get the pool reopened? So, yeah, we told them, yeah, it's just an icebreaker, but it's fun. It's relevant to the topic of the course, and it got lots of buzz. So I think, yeah, I'm learning uh, as we go on this one. And the next one is in, the next of these pilots is in Dakar in Senegal in uh, next month in June. So we'll see how that goes. All right, so those are the ones I forgot. And now back to this week. So links I liked, the usual com combination of sort of humor and seriousness. The serious stuff I thought this year, uh, this week was really good. So Julia Steinberger had a really interesting piece on the changing way young people engage with climate change. They didn't need to hear about emission trajectories. They needed to hear about trajectories of popular struggle, when and how people without power change the world. Yeah, a really interesting view that um, you need to convince people that change is possible now because there's a lot of um, defeatism and desperation and, and sort of um, people giving up. And the second post was a really interesting one on something that's, that I've been wondering about, which is how have USAID, the USAID uh, um, uh, department, been so successful at avoiding cuts? And it just is a kind of picture of inertia that they managed to, you know, with their congressional allies, they fought off attempts by Donald Trump to cut or downgrade aid. And to be honest, Trump was very poor at doing this kind of Washington you know, maneuvering. And unfortunately, now they're also resisting Biden's effort to uh, upgrade it. Um, but interesting to try and understand how the aid um, system can can defend itself for a certain period of time. Alas, in the UK, we've failed on that. And the, the, the state of the UK development strategy is pretty bad, which is what uh, the next post was about, which is by Sam Nadel, who's Oxfam's head of government relations in, in Oxfam GB. And this was about a, uh, the UK has a finally published its new development strategy. And according to Sam, it shows uh, that the UK is in the midst of an identity crisis. 
What should we make of a new development strategy from the UK out yesterday? After reading its 30 pages, I was left with the impression of a department struggling to reconcile two contrasting beliefs about itself. On the one hand, there are plenty of warm words about the UK's commitment to tackling the big global challenges and its proud record of global leadership on international de development. There are commitments to support women and girls, including promoting education, driving progress on sexual and reproductive health, and action to end gender-based violence. It's also good to see climate and health as headline priorities, after concerns these would be deprioritized. On the other hand, big chunks of the strategy seem to be more about tackling China rather than tackling poverty. We know a major priority for Liz Truss, the UK Foreign Secretary, is to manage the inexorable rise of China. So it's significant that a big part of this strategy focuses on deploying many of the same tactics China itself has used for many years. There's a big section on British investment partnerships, which puts our national economic power at the centre of our development approach, capital markets, investment and growth expertise, independent trade policies. So Sam concludes, overall at 30 pages and with few concrete commitments on which it can be held to account, it all feels a bit thin and there's a real risk this ends up sitting on the shelf. Ultimately, the strategy betrays a kind of identity crisis going on in government and an inability to decide whether or not it's serious about development on its own terms or rather than as a means to a geopolitical end. And I think other people, you know, commenting on social media said that Sam was being rather kind on that. And that, uh, but other people found lots to celebrate in the strategy. So I think it's worth taking a second look at. <clears throat> the next post, this is a very Oxfam week. The next post was by uh, Oxfam's Max Lawson, who, uh, who writes on uh, uh, the Equals blog, which is a really good Oxfam international blog, which I, I recommend you sign up for if you haven't already. Um, and this is Hunger, Inequality and the Birth of Oxfam. Across the world, people see rising prices and face impossible choices. Skipping meals, eating just once a day, eating only the cheapest food, cutting out more expensive and more nutritious meals. Working even longer hours despite feeling weak from hunger, pulling kids out of school to save money or because you cannot afford the soap to keep them clean. Leaving illnesses untreated for fear of the costs. Walking instead of taking the bus despite feeling desperately tired. Wearing loads of clothes to bed and eating uncooked food to save on heating and cooking. Women are once again forced into their role as shock absorbers of pain across the world. It is mothers that will skip meals first, feeding their children, telling the family they will eat later and not to worry. Mothers who are charged with the family finances, looking in horror at the new price of maize or oil in the market, choosing whether to buy medicine or food. Children, and especially girls, will pay a high price too. Already hit by school closures during COVID, many children will find their dreams of education further dashed as fees can no longer be afforded. The longer-term impact is pernicious, as lack of nutritious food stunts growth and development for millions more children, permanently affecting their lives for the worse. Rising food and fuel prices hit the finances of poor people far harder than the finances of the rich, and this in turn will fuel even further increases in inequality. The IMF estimates that whereas consumers in advanced economies use 17% of their spending for food, it accounts for 40% in sub-Saharan Africa. And within economies too, there is a major difference between rich and poor. In the United States, for example, in 2020, 
Families in the poorest 20% of society spent 27% of their incomes on food, whereas for the top fifth, the top 20%, the figure was only 7%. And then Max goes on to talk about famine in Greece and the birth of Oxfam, which, which was actually born as a uh, trying to get uh, uh, to lobby uh, the Brits to get food to people who were starving in Greece um, behind an allied blockade of the country at the end of the war. <clears throat> and then Max goes on to contrast that uh, with food billionaires. Food and energy markets are dominated by a very small group of corporations. Four trade trading companies control 70% of the global agricultural market. They get to decide which countries get food and at what price, who goes hungry and who gets bread. They're joined by investment funds who have increased their speculation in food markets markedly as they bet on volatile and rising prices. Olivier de Schutter, UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, and co-chair of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, said that they are indeed betting on hunger and exacerbating it. Our forthcoming paper for the Davos meeting later this month has some great facts on this, so watch out for them. We have seen record profits for food and energy companies, hugely boosting the fortunes of billionaires in these sectors and creating a whole slew of new food billionaires too. It's, it is hard to exaggerate the pain and suffering contained in these numbers, being lived as we speak in households across the world, impossible choices, hunger in a world of plenty. And we'll have a piece on the, the, that paper for Davos uh, um, next week. Final uh, post of the week was uh, by me uh, on East Africa versus Ukraine, two tragedies, two very different responses. And it's, uh, based, it's, it's summarising a new Oxfam Save the Children report called Dangerous Delay 2, bouncing off a, a Dangerous Delay 1 we did in 2011 when there was also a, um, a hunger crisis in, uh, in East Africa. But I start off with a kind of um, more general point. There's sometimes a fine line between what aboutery, unhelpfully distracting from one claim for public or policy attention by saying, yes, but what about X? And, a, and a, there's a fine line between that and a genuine exposure of double standards. But when it comes to East Africa right now, it's not a fine line, but a gulf distinguishing the world's feeble response from the laudable, if racially edged race to help the Ukraine. Um, East Africa is facing its second major famine in a decade, and it barely registers in the news. And the international system is failing. Only 3%, 3%, of the total $4.4 billion the UN 2022 appeal for Ethiopia, Somalia and Kenya had been funded as of 10th of May 2022. Here are some more numbers from that report, that Oxfam Save the Children report. In 2011, Somalia experienced, Somalia experienced a devastating famine that killed over a quarter of a million people, half of them children under five. The international community failed to act in time despite repeated warnings of an impending crisis. In the wake of the tragedy, leaders in the region made a commitment to end drought emergencies by 2022. The international community sought to ensure that there would not be a repeat of the failures that led to a famine. Next time, the world would heed the warnings and act early in anticipation to avoid the crisis. Yet just over a decade since the 2011 famine, and despite various alarms and warnings over the past two years, the commitment to anticipatory action 
has proven half half-hearted. We are once again responding too late and with too little. Nearly half a million people across Somalia and parts of Ethiopia are facing famine-like conditions, with women being particularly affected. In Kenya, 3.5 million people are suffering extreme hunger. And UN predictions suggest that 350,000 Somali children will die by the summer if governments and donors do not tackle food insecurity immediately. The number of people facing extreme hunger in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia has more than doubled since last year, from over 10 million to over 23 million. And yet there's been lots of progress in the intervening years. Since 2011, emergency cash and voucher assistance have become one of the primary response modalities in the humanitarian sector and shifted the power to choose spending from to the individual and household instead of the donor. Cash and voucher assistance support people's own planning so they can select and prioritise the items they need to prepare for shocks and can, if appropriately designed, target the specific needs of women and children. And they have been shown to have a positive impact across a wide range of child development outcomes. Governments in Ethiopia and Kenya have established social protection systems and have been expanding the coverage um, in the intervening decade to include more households that previously have been supported primarily with emergency relief. So social protection systems are in place in all three countries and can expand in response to shocks when properly resourced. At continental level, there's a rapid expansion of social protection between 2010 to 2015. And all countries now have at least one safety net. So yeah, lots of progress, but now the extent of the crisis is overwhelming those steps forward and exposing the cracks in the wider system. And this is a much broader failure than simply not finding the necessary cash. The failure to accelerate progress on countering climate change and preventing conflict around the world is now perpetuating a system of reliance on humanitarian aid that was not designed and is not resourced to respond to cyclical and predictable shocks at such scale. With such rising needs, we can no longer afford to wait for emergencies to develop. We must act early and, pre and preemptively to prevent predictive, predictable shocks from turning into crises. This requires far greater collaboration between governments, development, humanitarian, peace and climate actors. As we move deeper into the climate crisis, shocks from extreme weather and related factors including the interplay between climate and conflict, will increase further. A purely responsive system will not be able to prepare or respond to challenges in the years to come. For the 2022 hunger crisis, the, the one that's going on right now, we have once again been too late for anticipatory action. Communities are now in the teeth of the crisis and only urgent funding to the humanitarian response can save lives. But for the next crisis, we must do better. The report recommends changes in both the systems around anticipatory action and its finance. You know, lots of good ideas. But by my summary, you know, there are piles of technically sound, tried and tested proposals for anticipatory action, early warning systems and preventing catastrophe. And these are much cheaper and more effective than waiting for the disaster to occur and then responding. The problem lies in the politics, structure and incentives of the humanitarian system. That's what needs to change. And many, many lives depend on it. So gloomy stuff, I'm afraid, but the, you know, the, the knock-on effects of Ukraine on food prices and the, and the fuel price hike on fertilizer prices 
are colossal and what's going on in East Africa right now is really, really worrying. So I'm afraid I can't leave you on an upbeat note this week, but I hope you have a good weekend anyway. Bye.